Welcome to another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you like it is. And this is episode 134, number 134. And if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to leave them in the comments section on Podbean, or you can email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com. That is kbmakel at aol.com. And so, hey, there's a lot of stuff going on, so we'll get to it. First, I wanted to comment on the very sad news that the uh, action star Bruce Willis has aphasia, which apparently attacks the cognitive parts of his brain that that control speech. Um, Very, very sad. Bruce Willis... You know, uh, hey, is he Lawrence Olivier? No. But did he make some great movies? Uh, some of them we'll, we'll circle back to a little bit later. Um, he also put the Beretta 92 on the map in the movie Die Hard and in, in the uh, subsequent Die Hard movies as well. So it's, it's very sad to hear and, uh, you know, hope that however they, they can deal with that, they can deal with that. And maybe we'll see him on the big screen again. You know, one can always hope. Uh, of course, everybody is commenting on the slap heard around the world. Um, again, something that kind of, you know, dovetails into the entertainment business, obviously. Uh, you know, and, and there's a lot of commentary out there. Most of it's dishonest. You know, the truth of the matter is, Will Smith is a pig. He is a thug and a pig. And he deserves to be kicked out of the, uh, you know, Academy of Motion, whatever that nonsensical freaking thing is. He deserves to be kicked out, and he deserves to have his Oscar taken away and uh, either given to the guy who came in second or uh, just say none was awarded. He's a pig and a thug, and uh, there's just no excuse for it. Absolutely no excuse. And the worst part of it is, it wasn't 24 hours until somebody brought up some sort of race angles in this that it's a racial thing and I'm like wait a minute Jada Pinkett Smith is black Chris Rock is black and Will Smith is black and I don't think this thing involved anybody else so how this is a racial thing I don't know but they're they're drawing broader comparisons of well they can't arrest him because it would be you know more of the oppression of the black man or something uh, that, that's all nonsense. That's all just, you know, the same goofiness that uh, always happens around this stuff. Um, you know, the very bad part of this is the Oscars used to... Be, first of all, who, who even knew they were happening the other night? Who even knew? I mean, you know, it used to be that there was there were several weeks of hype and everybody knew the movies. And to show you how far this has degenerated... Um, nobody really knew it was on. They they never get much of a um, of an audience, and the movies and performances that are nominated are never the big blockbusters that you would expect. It's it's always these very artsy or message films, and you know they started going down this bad path of politics a while ago, and and people don't really want to hear actors who are in a very broad sense undereducated people spewing about politics nobody really wants to see that 
The other thing that has turned people off that nobody will talk about is that uh, it started some years ago, probably, you know, when the movie Ray was out. That was like, had to be 17, 18 years ago, the one about Ray Charles, that, that somehow there was a institutional racism against black actors. So there's always, and just a couple years ago, the, the Oscars were the nominees were too white. I mean, people aren't tuning into that. People don't know. First of all, how do you subjectively or objectively say, well, the representation is enough, the representation is too much here, not enough there? How do you do that? I, I always thought that perhaps when it comes to an award based on merit, that the most meritorious people should be should be nominated. And so it doesn't matter if they're all black, doesn't matter if they're all white, doesn't matter if there's some ratio of the two. Doesn't matter. Just get the best ones up there. But they they're they cannot subjectively select the best ones without factoring race, diversity, inclusion, and quotas and all this other nonsense into it. So they've ruined the Oscars. When you invite thugs like Will Smith, you know, and I feel sorry for Chris Rock. He's a funny comic. He's he's a funny guy. Um, you know, he's he's up there, and we pay those guys to entertain us with jokes, and we expect them to be a hundred percent funny all the time. And you know, like anybody else, he's going to have a joke that bombs now and then. And the one against the one about Jada Pinkett Smith bombed. He probably didn't know she had the condition that causes her hair to get thin, so she shaved her head. He saw that, thought it was probably a trend in G.I. Jane, whatever that was, whatever it was. He's paid to make jokes. And if you're Will Smith and Jada Pinkett Smith, guess what? You're entertainers. Her career isn't nearly as large, but she has one. And and guess what? You kind of get the heat, too. You know, you get the big bucks. you got to kind of take a little bit of the, the brunt of the jokes. But they can't even do that. Talk about self-centered, egotistical, and every other bad character trait you want to throw in that's related to that. And what does this all have to do with guns? Well, it has to do with, you know, these are a lot of the types of people who are trying to lecture you on guns and other things, and like they actually know something, and they don't, and you see how they act. You see how they act. Um, it, it was absolutely ridiculous. and But that's how they act. And why would you value, you know, when you see the corniness of, of Hollywood, you see how they've ruined progressive actors have ruined the Oscars. They've ruined a lot of things. They think that they are some social spokesperson for this, that, or the other thing. And you know what? They're nobodies. They get paid money to uh, to act. They get paid well. If you're if you're on the top tier, you you get a lot of dough. But that doesn't make you smart. That just makes you highly paid. So uh, yeah, they're they're pretty uh, pretty silly. It's uh, it's a sad thing to see. Really, it's really a sad thing to see. Uh, one of the one of the things people used to like and look forward to is now <clears throat> now gone. It's now gone. So we've covered the slap, and Bruce Willis 
And, and I have to say, Keltec in the Ukraine, even other podcasts are starting to pick up on the story of, you know, who, who, you have to hate the Ukrainians to ship them Keltecs, basically. <laughs> uh, I don't know how well-meaning that is, if it's a publicity stunt or what the, what the whole story is, but... Uh, you know, all you kind of get is, well, we had a customer in the Ukraine, he kind of went silent, so we're shipping the guns anyway to the rebels. Okay, that's fine. Uh, I'm sure all the paperwork had already been done and everything, so... Uh, and, and maybe the guns were even paid for. Maybe this isn't the charity... <laughs> the charitable act that it seems to be. We'll see. I have a very funny feeling that... Uh, There'll be some <laughs> when this is all over. There'll be some Keltec parts kits on the uh, <laughs> on the market, probably probably never used, dropped, run over, or or just they just have the damage that they would take when somebody takes one and heaves it as far as they can, because after all, it's a Keltec. So now comes the uh, the point where we talk about some things that aren't funny, or aren't that much fun anyway. Um, it appears that James Yeager, the guy's kind of a controversial trainer. Uh, he was one of the first kind of big YouTube gun personalities. Very, very much over the top. Had a company, uh, has a company called Tactical Response. I guess last year, at the end of last year, he got a, um, you know, the crushing diagnosis of ALS, which is Lou Gehrig's disease. And, uh... Uh, apparently that is something that you just do not recover from it just gets progressively worse until it's terminal so he's rather than you know sitting around feeling sorry for himself he's going to the ukraine to train ukrainians now it's probably beyond (laughs) that that's probably the time for that is probably passed but i understand he probably wants to go out as as a warrior so He's using his last bit of, of energy to do that, and uh, so kind of you know good wishes for that. But it's sad to see he was a he was a bigger than life personality. Whether you agreed with him, disagreed with him, and some of the things he did were were sketchy and weird and pushed the boundaries. But you know uh, he made some very entertaining uh, videos, and uh, he made kind of YouTubing, gun tubing. Uh, kind of what it is today. He was he was one of the guys who was in on the ground floor and doing it. So, and had a large large following, and he had a lot of controversy, as it as it goes. The next thing we report is the passing of a very interesting person. Lived in, well, she was in a a skilled nursing facility in Overland Park, Kansas, and she passed away just four days short of her 99th birthday and that is Rosalia Azoroyan who and you say who is that never heard of that person and and you probably never have and and very few people have uh she was a Soviet a Russian Soviet citizen um born 99 years ago um she was a female sniper in the Red Army during World War II after World War II, she and her husband lived in a Soviet Republic of Azerbaijan. Um, when Azerbaijan, her, and at some point her husband passed, Azerbaijan, when it became independent, when the Soviet Union dissolved in 1991, they did their own little um, ethnic cleansing, 
running basically the Russians out. So she had to, she came to the United States essentially as a refugee, had to start her life all over again in her late 60s, became a painter of, you know, at least some renown, um, very interesting person, and, you know, lived a good life here in the United States. And, uh, you know, it's, it's sad to see the lake, living links, the living memory to some of the greatest events in the world are now gone. Uh, they're just now gone, and I could I could go on and on and on. Um, there were people in my family who saw. My family is very interesting. I am not, but my family is very interesting, and they saw a lot of history. People who lived in the, you know, that middle part of the 20th century uh, had the ability to, you know, experience firsthand or at least deal with the consequences of a lot of world-changing events, you know, world wars, depressions, and great disasters, and tremendous engineering triumphs. Uh, it goes on and on. It was a very interesting time to be alive. Very, very interesting. So we, we, note, we note the passing of Rosalia, and we hope that, you know, she rests in peace, and that the toil of her life is something that you know her remaining family can be very very proud of and uh, you know it's a link to absolutely incredible events and you know it's one of those one of those things where you know it, it's the old Halsey quote there are no great men only great challenges that ordinary men have to live up to and, and of course you could put men and women in there I couldn't imagine you know very many 20 20 year old girls becoming a frontline sniper and surviving most of them did not most of the Soviet women snipers uh, unfortunately did not but anyway she did and, and she lived to a ripe old age and, and had a great life okay the next thing I have to report the demise of is something a lot less uh, in the human realm, but as a lot of uh, people who've listened to this podcast know, I, I was a fan of zoot shooting, and if you want to know what zoot shooting was, it's it's harder now because the website's gone. It was essentially 1930s three-gun action shooting, kind of a the 1930s version of a cross between three-gun and cas, um, cowboy action shooting. So, uh actually it was quite excellent um why is it why is it gone why am i reporting this well for the last two years in the throes of covid the world championship in air quotes were canceled uh, due to lack of participation just in the covid environment and for other reasons it um it just fizzled and so you know what why didn't zoot shooting take off at least as much as Wild Bunch did or as much as Cass, cowboy action shooting did or, or any of the other gun sports that are popular today? And I think it comes down to uh, several, several things. The first was timing. When they introduced it, it was 2008. It was during the, the, you know, the, big the Great Recession, they called it. Remember, it wasn't a depression. It was the Great Recession. Um, 
a lot of people were cutting back on their you know discretionary fund money and new shooting sports really were not what people were into they, they just they you know going out and starting something like that just didn't seem to be very prudent so that was one of the reasons uh, another reason really is location uh, it started in Colorado and the range that would host most of them including the world championship which actually believe it or not people from overseas would travel here um, and and shoot in it so there were several overseas contestants every year I went in 2012 and uh, there were probably I don't know 50 shooters maybe yeah there, were, there was at least that many yeah and uh, some of them came from overseas very nice people um, they had to borrow weapons and things because transporting weapons that were legal there into here for a variety of reasons is a no-go so anyway that was all that was all happening but the, the location Colorado is a very unfriendly place to the rest of the country simply because most places in Colorado have a very high elevation and if you're a flatlander like me I, I grew up in the mountains but it's been decades since I've lived there so I'm essentially a flatlander I go up to 5,000 feet elevation and start doing athletic things like shooting and, and kind of moving around even arranged moving my guns around in a gun cart all that kind of stuff um, it takes a toll uh, and the older you get the the greater that toll is and uh, it's not a lot of fun sometimes so that was a problem the other problem was the range they shot at was north of Byers Colorado it was like 25 I think 26 miles north of Byers Byers is just a tiny little hamlet on um, I-70 uh, outside of the Denver, Denver Metroplex, you know, it's it's probably another 20 miles away from southern Denver, and it's got one flea bag hotel, and then you go 26 miles north from Byers to the range. Well, it's not a destination. It's not user friendly. There's no camping or anything really close by, so it's it's a problem. It's a big problem. Um, I went, my wife went, another family member went. They were, they were going to just kind of watch and support me doing this, <laughs> doing this frivolous thing. And uh, But there were no spectator facilities, no places to sit, no refreshments, no nothing. You know, there was just, it was just a, a kind of an empty range. It was a little range house, but that was it. Um, you know, and it was, a, it was a dry, dusty, hot place where you know you're kind of struggling for oxygen if you were a flatlander like me uh that that took a lot off that took a lot off and out of out of me so um you know in subsequent years i'd planned to go back but i had two injuries that that prevented me a job change which prevented me and you know I, sometimes life just gets in the way and um it was just not going to not going to happen. Um, it's something that would have been a lot more fun and a lot better to participate in um, if you live there. You know, if you live at your local range. And, and here's why. Um, when you're talking about location, it's... For me, I had to travel six, seven hours to get there. Okay, so I can't go home 
at night if if I need to get another match you know rifle for the competition um, I just can't go home and get it so I got to bring my match rifle my match pistol and then I have to bring spares so all of a sudden I'm hauling two semi-automatic Thompson's two 1911 pistols and, and you know and I refuse to bring a backup for the shotgun shot shotguns basically never break so my my Ithaca trench gun um, <laughs> I just I rolled the dice because I knew that that wasn't really gonna break and as it turned out nothing broke you know so I, I carry these other things um, you know that's a lot of equipment to be hauling back and forth and after after a day of doing uh, five or six of the stages which they call capers I mean you're you're dragging you're you're dragging and then you gotta haul all this equipment back to a hotel get it up into the room and, and you know it's it's just it's it's a lot it's it's a lot more effort than if you live locally the, uh, the other problem was costuming for zoot shooting um, doesn't doesn't really take into account hot weather now if you're really clever you could you could dress in a you know a Panama hat and a light shirt and light slacks and that would be smart most people when they think of zoot shooting as 1930s kind of gangster style um, you know it, it you, you tend to wear heavier clothes and for the ladies who are participating the range at buyers was very unfriendly to heels flapper dresses you know the kind of clothing that pe that women would wear in the 20s and 30s so it, it was very unfriendly towards that so it didn't it's not like cowboy action shooting where you can have you know kind of more outdoorsy type clothes so that those two things were a problem those two things were a big problem another problem was perceived cost um, the beautiful part of it was there are no game guns in zoot shooting I mean there really aren't um, there's very little you can do to a semi-automatic Thompson to make it more quote competitive quote unquote uh, usually what happens uh, because you don't have to have the triggers worked on or anything because the gun is so heavy that even a heavy trigger pull on the firearm doesn't move the sights much or anything so it's it's not really you don't really need that um, the gun just kind of is what it is there's not really any modifications you do to it it's semi-automatic the the other beautiful part is it um, there's no you know little pop trail boss loads like you see in CAS um, you've got to shoot full powered ammunition to make the Tommy gun cycle just what you have to do same thing with the 1911 pistols um, you know you can get a bare bones 1911 fixed sight pretty inexpensively and um, you know there was one guy who tried to game it used a 38 super but the caper design was the stage design was set up so that he didn't really have any any advantage um, most people use 1911s there were a few one in 38 super and you know there were a couple of things like some one lady had a browning high power a gun which never would have been in the hands of, of gangsters and bootleggers and you know g-men it just wouldn't have been but you know you you just can't make the rules 
so granular that you exclude this and that. So it's it's there, and it, it didn't really hurt anything, you know. Um, but you know, eventually down the road, they were going to have to make some sort of a some sort of a compromise because the 1911 essentially kicks ass on revolvers, uh, just the way it reloads. So you're going to have to have a separate revolver and and uh, um, semi-automatic class, which they never really got to. Um, you also have to look at minor calibers versus larger calibers. They never really did that. They kind of said, "Hey, anything 32 and above," because of course a lot of the action and in, in the in the genre, the movies, um, 32 caliber guns were very very prominent. And in fact, they had side matches where you would uh, you'd have 30, 25, and 32 caliber guns. So, you know, getting back though to the location and the cost. The cost of a Tommy, uh, you know, was about $1,000, $1,100 then, and it's about, I think those things are approaching, two th you know, eight, seventeen, eighteen hundred, maybe even $2,000 today. That's pretty expensive. Um, it's not bad compared to a lot of things, but, uh, you know, you for, let's just say for 2500 bucks, you could easily get into a shotgun, a bare bones 1911 and a Thompson, and that's that's actually not too bad. But the Thompson is a pretty hefty chunk, and uh, that's just the way that goes. You could use other main match things, but you know, face it, you zoot shoot to shoot a Tommy gun. You don't you don't bring your 1873 cast lever action there. You just you just really don't. You can, but you know the magic was kind of in the Thompson. So uh, that's that's what most of the people used. Uh, there were a couple of, there were a couple, well, I won't say a couple, but there was one, you know, the old Commando Arms Thompson look-alike, that went down about halfway through, just broke, and, and that's the way that was. Um, I think the, um, I think the barrel started unscrewing on it or something, you know, so, uh, yeah, so that, that didn't last too long. People have used semi-automatic, the Suomis, and you know, PPSHs and all these other kind of things. Stuff that was never in the hands of the gangsters, but, you know, is, is, is passable. Um, so cost, cost was there. You could get in, uh, theoretically, you could use an M1 carbine, but you had to, they had a velocity limit, and getting it to function at the low enough velocity is always a trick. Um, couldn't really use the um, 1907 Winchesters, uh, you know the semi-automatic just because frankly they're slow reloading compared to the Thompson low capacity compared to the Thompson and probably five to ten times more expensive so they never got used so cost was a deal now when it came to costuming if you were inventive or you're like me you're just on a budget and you just say hey you know I can't afford to go out and buy a suit that I'm just going to tear up on the range. You know, you go to secondhand stores, you could, you know, if you kind of, you know, you if you could buy a passable fedora for about 40 bucks um, online, and you could go to thrift stores and kind of get the rest. I, I got the pair of shoes I wore for $3 at a, uh, at a thrift store, you know. Um, it all kind of worked, you know, just you get black socks. I was able to get um, dark kind of work pants. They were black from Walmart. They they had them, you know, and they were they were cheap. They were fifteen dollars a pair, so I got two pairs of them. 
um, got a little black vest for about $15, $20, and an old suit coat that was very, very dark gray, which looked good with the black vest and the black pants. Um, you know, it actually all kind of worked. Um, and, and so you're into that for well, well under 100 bucks. You know, you can be into the costuming. And you could even go, you could even go cheaper. Uh, you could certainly go cheaper. So the, the cost was there. The, the other thing was the culture. Um, you know, our culture is really not gangster movies and the 1920s and 30s were just not as popular as people thought. They're fun. And if you're kind of into it, it's great fun. Um, but our culture's really not into it. And our culture really kind of looks down especially the woke culture now kind of looks down on that as well that was a time of, of lots of prejudice and everything rather than seeing the good parts and saying there was a lot of progress and things so uh, the culture really didn't doesn't today support the kind of culture that it was back then uh, another thing that was the uh, cultural problem was calling it even zoot shooting um, anybody who knows anything about history knows that it wasn't a zoot suit was not something of the 1920s and 30s the zoot suit was something that came out of the barrios in the 1940s and they were large fitting suits and and a lot of people had heartburn with that because they were seen as wasteful that was during a time during during wartime when every conceivable resource was being conserved and, and put towards a war effort so large baggy suits were seen as something as flaunting um, the war effort and and that type of um, sacrifice so a lot of people didn't like zoot suits I can understand why they kind of thought that because a zoot suit does look very 1930s but it, it doesn't it did not match and and zoot is just a silly sounding word I, I zoot shoot Okay, uh, we we would sit down and we couldn't figure out. I sat down with several of the guys. There was a guy, Henning Walgreen was one. Walgren, uh, he bailed on Zoot. He was one of the founders. He and a guy named Jason Huss. They they he bounced early and said, "I, after a couple of years, I'm not going to do this." And so the the rest of the people, we'd sit down and say, "What should we really call this?" Because Zoot shooting isn't exactly right, and nobody could ever come up with a good name that would get it not like cowboy action shooting or or some of the other things um precision rifle there was just not a good term that would encapsulate action shooting between 1920 and 1940 um so that was that was another part of the culture if you don't have a name you can't establish a brand if you don't have a brand uh how are you going to attract people to it and and sadly enough the sad commentary is um and i don't know about today with world events but poland had a couple of clubs that were doing it and so did italy so overseas it kind of caught on and lived a little better than it did in the united states and there was a there was a website and you could join and have the alias and all those good things um you know i i I paid for several. I paid for a lot of years, actually. You pay, pay thirty-five bucks a year, and you got a little pin and a sticker and a little membership card. And, and frankly, at, at a certain point, I just stopped paying it because I'm not getting anything in return, really. So, um, you know, you kind of 
add all that up and that's kind of what killed it and it's a shame of it is uh, wild bunch clubs that do cowboy action shooting wild bunch are moving into zoot shoot territory they're shooting military rifles up through world war ii you know the manually operated stuff um you know they they put on a lot of them are the official rules are not encompassing it but a lot a lot of the local clubs are pushing into that that era and it's a shame um the cowboy action people just would not have anything to do with zoot shooting which was a shame because it was really very similar and it would have attracted people who might have decided hey i want to do both i've seen that you know i like zoot shooting but i think this cowboy stuff might be interesting too could have helped their um could have helped their demographic you know face it the demographic for cowboy action shooting is getting older and older and older because not as many kids grew up with westerns to you know to most people under the age of 40 today westerns yeah well there's yellowstone and there's a few things here and there but um they're not certainly as predominant as they were when you know every time you turned on you could not turn on network television in the 1960s without without stumbling across a western i mean it just you had it, it would have been a lot of work to avoid west, a western so um the, the people who are really steeped in that have, have changed you know and that is that's something that's you know really really pretty sad actually that to think that that's kind of going away but uh, you know the costuming shooting sports are are something that just not as popular as they were 30 years ago and um you know it's it's it'll be interesting to see where cas goes this might have been an opportunity to breathe some life into it but you know personalities and and other things just kind of got in the way so zoot shooting is unfortunately gone and probably gone forever um i've often put out not often i've put out several feelers from time to time about doing it here where we live in kansas city which you think would be perfect because that that time frame is really something that's uh, a big part of the city's history and it, you know there are people who would probably come participate but the overhead of putting it together is too much for one person um you really need a crew of some people who are dedicated and you know it could be done it'd be interesting uh i might even uh, actually ask him if the uh not really interested in the name or anything but I'm, I'm sure they have the rights and all this other stuff you know the all the legal stuff and paperwork and i don't know what they're what they're going to do with that if they're just going to leave it or if it's going to be a uh, um something that they'll try to revive at some point um until the economy gets better i don't see it really reviving uh, on the other side of the thing though i do have to say car arms from what I saw was very supportive they would give guns both Tommy guns and 1911s as prizes which I thought was pretty cool they're they're a pretty cool company uh, for the most part and uh, I, I will just end the zoot shooting the stream of consciousness diatribe by saying I've done a lot of shooting over the years everything from high power NRA high power I've done service rifle 
Eh, you know, bullseye, small bore, all kinds of different things. And the most fun I ever had at a match was at zoot shooting. Absolute, without question. So I'm sorry to see it go. And that's the that's the epitaph for that. Uh, to get back to an update, I test-fired a reasonable quantity of my 323 powder-coated gas-checked bullets in my Winchester 32 Special with outstanding results. Um, I used a charge of Unique from the uh, Lyman Cast Bullet Handbook, um, pretty close to a maximum charge, and they're powerful, they're great. Um, I have to seat them a little deeper in the case, the 175 grain bullets, than I'd like. But there, there are no problem. There, there is no pressure, no, no uh, issues whatsoever, and they really fed through the uh, magazine quite well. You know, the lever action rifles have a very, you know, fairly complex um, procedure that when you load it, then it, it gets pulled back, lifted, and inserted into the chamber. That's a fairly complicated process, and uh, worked out pretty well. Worked out really well, as a matter of fact. Um, I was very happy with the bullets, very happy with the performance, and that, you know that's something that you could could really use. It's not just a, a plinking round. It it could close range bring down big game uh, pretty easily. So uh, big game meaning like white tails, you know. So anyway, uh, that's the that's the deal there with that. Uh, one thing, uh, two things that I need to bring up. One is uh, trigger update from the ATF. Apparently there's a story out there that the ATF is going to start going after these binary triggers and they're going to come knocking on people's doors. They're going to get the sales records and knock on people's doors. I mean, we've heard this before, so I wouldn't get upset about it until uh, it starts happening. But they're talking about it. They're talking about it. So, I don't know about that. The, uh, the next thing to uh, um, check out is you know, a lot of people, especially with constitutional carry and, you know, CCWs, a lot of people are leaving weapons in their automobile. Um, and these are getting stolen. So be very careful. Get a, either have a very good place to hide it or a very good little, uh, those little gun vault things that fit under the seat, Some anything. Um, and don't let anybody know that you have it carry it you know a lot of people a lot of people brag you know there's a lot of people and I work with people who do this you know they they got their CCW gun on them and they kind of want to flash it you know it's kind of a cool thing and they think they're cool the best cool with the CCW is that nobody knows you have it nobody knows it's in your truck no or your car nobody knows where it is and if you think it's safe locked in a trunk, the trunk of your car, you're mistaken. They can pop those things like crazy. They, they can get into a car almost like it's unlocked. A good car thief. And your gun's in there. Then you get, you know, the joy of explaining to the police it was a gun, it was loaded, it was in your car, it was unattended, and thieves have gotten it. I, I don't know how much fun that is in real life, and I certainly would not want to find out. Okay, we will now go into the question and answers portion of the podcast. 
and we have one came from our listeners and it asked me if I have any experience with ATV or UTV gun racks and sadly I don't uh, you know gun racks are one of those they are a tough nut to crack for a couple different reasons and it's an excellent question I really I really like that question because it's broad enough so that you know you can really talk about what's the what's the deal with it um, ATVs and UTVs and and also like I, I spoke a couple of weeks ago about my Jeep um, what kind of a rack do you want in there what what do you need the weapon for and how quickly do you need to access it and what type of weapon are you are you carrying um, and and rather than belaboring all that we can just say that you know there's gonna be times where you know for most people it may just be a small game rifle eliminate pests shoot squirrels rabbits you know these kind of things uh, it may be a shotgun for hunting hunting turkeys or, or hunting uh, uh, bird hunting some way it could be a kind of a big game rifle deer rifle for some some deal or it could be a defensive rifle maybe you know for whatever reason uh, you need it and they're gonna have radically different solutions uh, first of all to, to kind of work backwards defensive rifles usually military pattern rifles it's very difficult finding a civilian gun carrier or gun rack that will fit them because if you look at things like the AR um, most of them have the front sight post which stick up or they have the pistol grips and you know longer magazines so you know it's very difficult finding something that 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 can fit into that you can pull out chamber around and, and go to town you know it's it's gonna be harder to find that than it is for a say a bolt-action hunting rifle uh, the ones I would look at though for whatever use um, I like the ones made by a company called Coplin and I haven't bought any yet but I notice they have different models out now they used to have ones that were just really good with bolt-action rifles but I think they've got some now that you could probably use with an AR or with a, um, a, a shotgun you know it, it's it's broader down towards the end of the barrel unlike a a narrow uh, place where you would have the uh, the barrel of a bolt-action rifle because it doesn't have a front sight that stands up like the AR or a gas system hanging underneath or anything else so um, those would be the best those will protect the gun the best and I think they call them the gun boot or something and I think they sell for you know 80 to 100 bucks depending on the model if you can find one that'll fit your AR that's probably a really good one because the ones that are my least favorite are the brackets that just the padded brackets that you just put the gun into and you you tighten these things down um, obviously if you're wheeling around the country mud and dirt and dust and everything else is going to get all over your firearm now for hunting that might not be a big deal because you're just going a short distance and parking the thing um, so whatever whatever works best but I would uh, I would recommend the Copland gun case if you can get it if you can't get that try to look for and they're from a variety of manufacturers some are some are high speed and some are not um, any of those Kodora type um, they're they're kind of scabbards, you know. Look look at the scabbards and see what you can uh, 
see what you can get that that anything that can the more protection you can get for the gun the better and uh, some of those scabbards will take an AR too so a uh, very good question and that's about the best I can do another one is and I think we talked about this a couple months ago um, are you familiar with AK style shotguns and it's like I, I've seen them I've hefted them uh, they're very cool I don't know that I have a use for them everything I can think that they could do because they're really not for hunting they're really for defense uh, I would probably prefer an AK rifle to an AK shotgun um, reason being is I like 30 rounds better than the four or five rounds I realize there are some 10 round magazines out there but those things that they, they tend to be large clunky and heavy at that point unless I had to have a shotgun for some, some really really um, overriding consideration uh, I would rather have an AK rifle but by the same token um, these are they are very cool and I have been seriously tempted um, you know there's a it definitely would be some impressive with a 10 round magazine you would have some impressive firepower so um, you know I, I don't know much about them I know there are several different companies that make them you can't really get the Russian ones anymore haven't been able to get those for for years now but um, I think they make them in Turkey and I think the Chinese make them and so it's pretty much a uh, roll of the dice which one you go with and which one works out uh, another question are you familiar with the Model 36 and Model 60 Smith & Wesson Chief Special Revolver? Is it a good gun for concealed carry? Um, well, they've been good guns for, for years and years and years. They, If you understand what they're there for, um, they called it a Chief Special because chiefs were, police chiefs had to be armed, but they needed something small, discreet, and, and easy to carry, and but still packed, you know, a, a reasonable punch. Uh, they were very popular. Um, I've got a Chief Special, belonged to my father, who was a physician, and it was a gun that he could easily carry and conceal and yet have on him. Uh, so they are very, very good guns. Uh, the limitation are is, is limitation are the limitation is they have five shots, not six like the uh, like most other snub nose revolvers. The uh, benefit of the five shot cylinder is that it's a very, very slim compact gun and so you have to make up your own mind whether um, that one shot in capacity makes that big of a difference um, in light of the advantages you get with um, portability so uh, I do have to say my favorite snub nose is a Colt Detective Special 2 that I bought some years ago um, very very good gun but I think Ruger and a few other people make very good um, snub nose revolvers now also so um, you know the snubby is a good gun it's a lot better than I always thought it was I never really cared for it much until you know there's a time when you need discreet carry there's time when you need um, a, sh a very portable nice gun and a snub nose will get that to you but you do sacrifice range with it and then the chief special you sacrifice range and one shotting capacity um, and then yes Colt Detective Special 2 is the same way um, okay here is another question is the Beretta 92 SF 
a good pistol in light of the more modern pistols that are on the market now or is it obsolete and as Jeff Cooper said an ingenious solution to a non-existent problem um, a Beretta 92 is an excellent gun I was a Beretta hater when they replaced the 1911 I thought one of God's great inventions has now been it was blasphemy the that one of God's greatest inventions to us as men, as mankind, was being replaced by, you know, this uh, kind of funny-looking squirt gun-looking thing from Italy. When I grudgingly gave turned in my issue 1911A1 for the Beretta, um, I was I was I was crestfallen and, and heartbroken. When I actually shot the Beretta, I was impressed. I was impressed with the reliability. I was impressed with the trigger pull. Even the transition from double action to single action, it was very good. I was very impressed with its practical accuracy. Very, very impressed. Um, hitting 30 targets 30 meters away was all, was man-sized targets, was, was child's play. And uh, it's a very, very good gun. I carried it uh, overseas a couple of times thought it was outstanding um, I like it because it's essentially a very safe gun it um, I, I realize there are people who try to do some kung fu thing that they see in the movies where I guess it's Jackie Chan you know takes the top off of Beretta you know and all that that's all nonsense um, I think they've tried you know that that's just all nonsense it's movie stuff um, but the nice part about it is you can have it cocked. I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. You can have a round in the chamber and you can put the safety on and drop the hammer. And, you know, the nice part about it is that's very safe. Somebody, like if a child finds it, they, they usually don't have the uh, um, mechanical knowledge to know what's going on. If they just pick it up and pull the trigger, it won't do anything. And that's, that's pretty nice. That's something that the modern paddle safety guns as typified by the Glock do not have you know they don't since they don't have a manual a manual safety um, you pick it up and you depress the little the little thing on the trigger and it's and it goes you know so um, I, I think they're very safe guns they're very good guns uh, they gave the country excellent service um, I, I don't know enough about its replacement to to make much of a um, much of a comparison I, I'm sure that it has some advantages um, but I, I tell you what I while it will never be the icon that the 1911 a1 was it, it was a worthy in, in the, the truth be spoken it was a worthy successor it really was so the uh, Beretta 92 is a very very good gun and I would um, you know, I would carry one again in harm's way unreservedly. Somebody handed me a, 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 a Beretta 92. I have no problem with it. I, I like the gun so much that in order to make sure that I scored well on my pistol qualifications when I was doing such things, and I qualified twice a year, um, I actually bought one and, um, you know, practiced with it and... Uh, you know, I've come to respect it quite a bit. Uh, it's a very, very good gun. 
And in fact, it is such a good gun, I've actually bought a second one, one of the surplus Beretta 92Ss. Um, it's, it doesn't quite have the refinements. It doesn't have as good a sights. And the, um, the, the uh, magazine release is kind of down at the, the rear end of the butt. It's still a button release, but it's a little different. Um, I bought one of those when they were, you know, comparatively cheap. And, you know, I'm very happy with that. That's a gun I would keep in a stash somewhere and be very... I would. I have no problem using that gun. I have no problem with it. I think it's excellent. Um, it's not as refined, and I, I prefer the 92SF to it, but it's still a good gun. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's really very good. So I would... I like the Beretta 92s. I think um, they're still going to make them for a while, and so... If you want one, I'd say grab one. I would say grab one because they're uh, they're a good deal. Okay, here is our last question, and I'm going to kind of expand on this. This question was: I'm confused on AR-15s and build quality and brand quality. I cannot tell the difference between some of the lower cost. AR-15s and some of the ones that are much higher cost other than cosmetic features and just kind of a general say the finish the exterior finish but it seems like the basic components of the two firearms are the same so is it worth it to buy the higher-end AR or build a higher-end AR than it is to build the kind of the average or lower-end quote-unquote guns. Okay, I've, I've talked about this before, and one of the things you have to just, if you take the, the first and probably the largest thing of it out of the equation, which is snobbery, okay, you know, my Daniel Defense, or and some of these are, are very good guns. First of all, the high-end guns are very good guns. There's no question that they're they're built very very well, and they perform and they will do what they are said to do. Now the the real question is how much of that quality do you need before you reach diminishing returns? How how much is is there a certain level where good enough is as good as the best? And I, I will, I will say unreservedly that I, I think that is the case. Um, you know, it's like, and, and there's the the uh, the kind of the talk that usually circles around this is, well, if you're going into harm's way, you know, if your whole city is collapsing in riots. Um, you know, are you going to feel as confident in an Anderson or a CMMG or or a lower end AR as you would be if you had, you know, Daniel Defense or I think even Wilson Combat has made some ARs. I may be wrong, but I think they have. Or some of these other great um, great companies. Um, what is it? Cobalt Kinetics, another one. I mean, I mean, I, I can't keep track of them. There's so many of them out there. Um, the, the deal is, 
I think that number one you have to know your particular gun and I'll give you an example I've got a DPMS M16A2 clone or AR15A2 clone it's semi on only um, which is as good a quality as any M16A2 that I used in the service in, in my opinion it's accurate it's actually a little bit better because it's got a, he a little heavier barrel and so it's more accurate the only thing that is a detractor on it the only one issue is that out of every 10 GI magazines I will get one that feels a little tighter and it won't drop free and I think that's because DPMS probably has a slightly maybe even imperceptibly smaller um, magazine well you know just different manufacturers it's probably on the stingy end of the tolerances so it's it's not at the wide end of the tolerances and so I I know this and I just leave magazines that won't work that don't work in it as optimally now it, it still uses them I just have to pull it out when it comes and it doesn't take much force or anything this is not a big issue this is not a for civilian shooting it's no issue at all for defensive shooting it's a slight issue but still not a big issue but I do segregate and and I don't use magazines that are that, are that way and it uses uh, P mags and other things fine uh, P mags do that in, in almost all ARs most people don't know that but they do so it's 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 really it's, it's like using a P mag okay so all right that's that's fine that but I would I would use that rifle anywhere I would use an M16A2. I, I think that the M forgery I have um, is the equal quality as far as reliability and durability and, and everything as the M4 I used in Iraq. Um, I think the SP1 and the uh, Proto AR clone that I have um, they're as good as any M16A1. I mean, reliability and all that. So, how much is good good enough? And and now you kind of leave the ARs on the table and you say, okay, well, maybe that's just you. Maybe that's just your your own prejudice and and everything else. Okay, fine. We'll leave the ARs on the table. Um, the answer is, hey, is a 1911A1 made by Remington Rand? You have one of those, say, that's brand new, 1944. Is that as good to take into combat as would be the modern Nighthawk Custom or Wilson Combat? And I think you honestly have to say that while those other guns are fantastic, that the 1911A1 is certainly certainly adequate, and the 1911A1 um, is is something that we you know we fought a war with. We know it's good. We know it works. We know it has the quality, durability, reliability, and accuracy that's needed. Those other guns are a little too much. You know, I mean, I don't know the, how they would stack up given that kind of use. Uh, another example would be: Do I need, if I'm a policeman on the street in 1980? Um, what's going to be the best gun for me to have is it a ruger a smith and wesson a colt python or a korth revolver and you could make the argument that the python and the colt revolver although they are superior in many ways 
very superior that they're it's diminishing return that the Smith and Wesson and the Ruger revolvers are excellent and will do everything needed to do and the the additional quality hand fitting and smoothness of the action and all that that are in the Python and the Korth are probably not as important as people think in in the daily in and out life it's it might be even even if you can say it's nice to have it's not necessary uh, so there's there is a certain level where you know your rifle is good enough and being better doesn't necessarily make it more useful um, you see that in in defensive rifles all the time um, my g3 clone is not nearly as accurate as a bolt action rifle <laughs> you know it's not but it's got excellent practical accuracy and it has other attributes that when the bolt action won't work anymore the g3 will still be working fine so there there are questions of do i need that gilt edge accuracy and am i willing to give up other things for it and the answer would be uh, probably no probably no and you could make the same argument with fnfals and and uh, m14s and m1 garands is the m1 garand as accurate as the 1903 springfield probably not if you had two guns in the same condition and and everything else you, you know the springfield is probably probably more accurate but not noticeably enough and the speed of the m1 garand in reloading the the lesser recoil the semi-automatic action not having to fool with the bolt handle makes it a uh, a much more desirable uh, piece of equipment so I would say that you know that's the same thing it's I, I always hate to say this brand this thing is better than anything you could have you know your own gun and if your own gun has durability or reliability problems um, you're gonna know it you're gonna find it out and you're if you cut if you just ignore that you're you're lying to yourself um, I would say though you know my standards and maybe my standards are artificially low um, if you if your rifle will will reliably shoot ball ammunition you know it uh, I don't really care what's stamped on it I really don't I don't care if it says Anderson I don't care if it says CMMG I don't care if it says spikes tactical DPMS Brownells Colt doesn't matter as long as it works it's good um, I know that there are some cheapy parts out there that should be avoided and, and you know you can go into every kind of permutation and all this but you know the fact of the matter is if you've used the standard and I hate to use the word mil spec but kind of the mil spec parts uh, it's hard to have a bad AR if if your AR has been put together by either a manufacturer or by a good builder um, it's going to be very, very hard to uh, to get a get a bad one that would let you down. Quote in the the firefight. So um, the only other thing people might do to try to mitigate what I've said is there there are all these meaningless tests they can do where they you know they fire at full auto. They'll put the upper on a full auto receiver and see how many mags can go through it before they burn it to pieces that doesn't matter 
that's irrelevant when we're talking about semi-automatic rifles. And uh, I think it's irrelevant when you talk about you're, you're not going to be in that kind of situation. Clearly, the not very top-of-the-line kind of considered pedestrian Smith & Wesson um, MP15 did just fine in Kenosha. Apparently, it did just fine. Only had to fire five or six shots and uh, did just fine. And, you know, the, the majority of ARs, that's probably the use that they're going to to have it's not going to be the extended firefight you know this is not hamburger you know you're not going to hamburger hill if you want to go to hamburger hill um you know i i think you live in a fantasy world but that's okay um you know get and test your own rifle and see how well it does but um most rifles that are out there are entirely suitable for most uses and uh going beyond that you really need a uh, you really need some reasons in my opinion to uh, go beyond that well that's it for this edition of old school guns the podcast that tells you exactly like it is you can always leave a comment or question for us on the comment section in podbean or you can email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com that is kbmakel at aol.com and until next time this is old school guns out